Welcome to Hyperbaric Living with Dr. Masha podcast. I'm Dr. Masha, naturopathic doctor, hyperbaric expert, and your podcast host, bringing you the cutting-edge interviews and ideas about hyperbaric oxygen therapy. I'm grateful to interview these bright minds and sharing their knowledge and experience in the field of hyperbaric oxygen therapy. Thank you for listening. So let's get started with this week's episode. Hello, and welcome back to Hyperbaric Living Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Masha. Today, I have with me a very special guest, Dr. Paul Anderson. I wanted to record this podcast for a really long time. Uh, I'm a big fan of Dr. Anderson. I'm watching his video on YouTube, reading your articles. Um, Thank you for creating all this content. And Dr. Anderson is a naturopathic doctor like myself. Uh, he taught at CCNM, but that was a little later. I graduated and I left the country, so we didn't coincide there. But we met at IHA conference, at International Hyperbaric Conference, where we both spoke. And uh, today we're going to be talking about COVID, uh, long COVID, uh, and other infectious diseases. Welcome to the show, Dr. Anderson. Thank you for having me. I'm I'm super excited, super pumped to do this show. COVID. I just had COVID myself. I had it last year and just recovered a couple of weeks ago from the second round of COVID. I know you've had it at the very beginning of pandemic. It was right at the beginning when the virus was really strong and you had really difficult time recovering. <clears throat> is is that true? Is that correct? Yeah, that's actually true. So I I've had it twice like a lot of people um i had because i uh, acquired the virus in china in uh early or yeah early 2019 um and uh, for a while we we thought well maybe it was a little too early but then as china has been admitting you know that uh, they knew about the virus earlier and earlier in the year uh, I'm pretty sure based on everything plus some testing later, that's what, what I had. Uh, it, that was very bad because partly because we didn't know what was wrong. Um, I went over to China to teach. Uh, I was very healthy and I came home uh, and, and I got sick while I was there. And it was um, very classic as far as the symptoms that we know now for the for the original Wuhan strain. Uh, so very high fevers for quite a protracted amount of time, uh, a pneumonitis um, that turned into a pneumonia, uh, a lot of respiratory swelling and uh, in, in very, very compromised airway, uh, and all the other things, of course, um, you know, co-infections, et cetera. Uh, the second time I got it was earlier this year uh, when Omicron uh, made a sweep through our area. And uh, that was, uh, since I knew what it was, I was just much more aggressive about what I did. And uh, that was a much better experience because I knew what was happening. Yeah. So do you think that severity of the disease um, of how we experience <clears throat> COVID at least partially depends on how early we start the treatment and whether this is, if this is a correct treatment for this particular infection? I 100% believe that. Um, I know that in a lot of parts of the world, they're uh, asking doctors to not talk about early treatment uh, and not participate in that, et cetera. Um, 
what I'll say just is I think this is important information for the rest of the program. Um, I have had a fair number of acute COVID patients during the last two years. I also have done consulting uh, for families who have a patient in the hospital where they may want uh, something more than just what the hospital is providing. So I've had kind of two groups of my own COVID patients over the last two years. But the other thing is I participate in a, a working group uh, of clinicians uh, doing early treatment for COVID. And at this point in total between all of us, we're I think up around over 3,000 patients. And what we found is with early treatment, um, you have a lot uh, less likelihood of going to the hospital or dying. You also have less likelihood of long COVID as well. So my bias based on all of that experience is uh, the quicker we can treat a person and the more you know appropriately well-rounded we can treat them, the better. I have to ask this question. So what would be more appropriate treatment um, if a person got COVID? Like, where do you start? Well, um, you know, one of the things that uh, we, we knew early on, and even with my experience where uh, COVID wasn't even known about, you know, in the U.S. when I was trying to sort out what was wrong with me the first time, uh, what I did know to do, which turned out to be very wise later on with all the research we have, was to check for other infections because we 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 couldn't really check for uh, SARS-CoV-2 because we didn't know it existed, right? But I started to check for opportunistic infections, and I found those, and as we treated those, that helped. Well, if you fast forward two years, there are numerous data, you know, probably... 40 or 50 peer-reviewed publications now showing that COVID opens the door to many other infections. And they can be things that before COVID, your body maybe had a little bit of and had no problem with. Uh, but after or during COVID, as your immune system is suppressed and you're inflamed, opportunistic infections can take over. Um, and, and literally, and you mentioned my, you know, like my YouTube videos, there's one of the YouTube videos from about probably two months ago now where in the description, I actually put in the uh, the references for all of these studies on co-infections. So while co-infections aren't maybe the only thing to treat, um, I think they're extremely important because um, what we know now is wherever your weaknesses are immunologically, COVID sort of opens the door there. And so if you tend to get respiratory bacterial infections or fungal infections or other things, um, those become a big problem. And to the degree that um, uh, the very few, and I'm talking about just a handful of people that I've seen over the years who went to the hospital and then passed away, all of them were diagnosed with other infections, but too late because the hospital didn't ask, you know, for the testing early. So I think early treatment needs to look at, you know, do a, a good history of the patient. It needs to look at how healthy they were before, but what also how sick are they at the moment? 
and then in in my mind based on my experience both with myself and other patients i think that testing for some of the more common chronic infectious things that can flare up or or you just get with covid is wise <coughs> I actually want to add here, I've had um, patients who were previously diagnosed with Lyme disease, and it would be managed, um, so they were doing quite well, and then they would get COVID, and it would go downhill from there. And the actual recovery would take months and months and months, and they would need to deal with the whole Lyme treatment again. So there is definitely reactivation of old infections. And as you're saying, people can also acquire these new infections while they're sick with COVID. Um, what yeah, what other what other examples besides Lyme disease, like when, when we're talking about this co-infections, what is it, candidiasis, or what kind of infections are you referring to? <clears throat> so one of the things, even going back to 2019 and forward, the co-infections can be literally anything, okay? So there are some commonalities, uh, such as Epstein-Barr and cytomegalovirus, two of the human herpes viruses, but really the whole family. Uh, candida is common. Um, the chronic atypical pneumonia organisms like uh, chlamydia and mycoplasma pneumoniae are very common and uh, do need to be treated because it will keep the inflammation in the lungs going. But also in, in research from all over the world, They've found um, some of the what you might call higher grade uh, pneumonia organisms like strep pneumoniae, Klebsiella, some of the other bad guys. And then some, um, you know, in the case of some of the patients I've seen in the hospital, uh, some very unusual either bacterial or parasitic infections that uh, aren't considered chronic, uh, just, just the immune system was suppressed and the person got infected. So so just about anything you can have can potentially piggyback on top of the COVID. I see. So um, if co-infections are being taken care of earlier in the treatment, then we see less progression to uh, long hauler, to some something that's here in Europe, we call it long COVID, but I've heard in the United States, it's more like long haulers, right? Um, yeah. Basically, yeah. We're using all those terms now. <laughs> so basically what it is, a person has recovered from COVID, but they continue um, having some of the symptoms, or they might develop some strange symptoms that they never had before and not even had during COVID infection. Right. Yes. Um, yeah, very, very important. Uh, you know, uh, it, an, another area that I see with active COVID that really helps to diminish the long haul um, and help you heal is a lot of times the hormonal system gets very stressed during COVID. And so your uh, adrenal hormones like cortisol um, may either go really high or really low. Either is not good for you. Uh, so checking into those, most doctors are not checking into any hormones, you know, either during COVID or in long haul. And what we find is that the, the inflammation in the body creates a lot of stress on the adrenal glands 
and their hormones, but also that creates a lot of stress on thyroid function, uh, which can lead to a lot of the fatigue and some of the other things that happen. And even if, uh, if a person's been sick for a while, some of the reproductive hormones can get out of balance as well. What determines, I know it's, um, maybe there's no straightforward answer to that, but what determines whether a person is, go is going to proceed to have long COVID or they would just recover from an infection? Because from what I see, it's not actually the severity of the infection itself. Yeah, I, I think that's one of the frustrating things for the medical community about long COVID is it it doesn't always make sense. So you have some people that have mild illness, but it persists. So they, they really don't get that sick with COVID. But two months later, they're, you know, they're still having neurological problems or other, you know, other long COVID effect. Um, the and the statistics are still emerging, which makes it very hard to generalize, you know, about who gets long COVID. Uh, the only statistic that has been uh, persistent is that if you have been hospitalized, which means you probably were pretty bad, uh, those people have a very high rate of long COVID. For non-hospitalized people, um, it, it, as you said, doesn't have a whole lot to do with how sick you were initially. And this is where I think, based on our experience in, in my working group, you know, talking about all of our cases, this is where I think that, um, number one, when we treat people early and attend to their co-infections and their inflammation and their hormonal changes and, you know, any other things that come up, when we treat them early, we have almost no long COVID. Okay, so that's one thing. But the other thing is that in people where, let's say, they're, they're an outlier and they had very low disease with COVID, but they're still sick two, three months later, usually what happens in those folks that I'm finding now is the low disease state COVID, as we talked about, opened up the door to other problems, whether it's hormonal or uh, co-infection or toxic, et cetera. And so they're just still dealing with the problems down the road. So it's more like, I think long COVID comes from not so much how sick you are with COVID, unless you're hospitalized, but really uh, what does COVID do to your immune system and what does it let in uh, when it's there? So that leads me to think that prevention is the key. So if we were optimizing our health and trying to prevent disease now that maybe later if we get sick with COVID, we will do much better in terms of recovery and not getting long COVID. So it's yeah. just being a trigger that triggers something that's already been there, but was silent or dormant yeah. at the moment. Yeah. And, you know, I, I think that might be partly why the, uh, I talked about this on a number of my uh, YouTube videos a month or two ago, the Israeli study where they happened to be checking vitamin D levels for some other purpose. And then they realized that they went through COVID and they all had all this vitamin D data on people that did or didn't get COVID, right? Well, what they found in that study was, is that um, if you were 
on the low end of the vitamin D spectrum. Uh, of course, when we get sick, our vitamin D levels go down even more, but you are many times more likely to you know, be hospitalized and have worse disease, et cetera, than if your vitamin D level is higher when you went into it. Um, and there's some evidence that might say that vitamin A is the same way because it's very uh, immune fortifying and it's protective against uh, respiratory organisms. So vitamin A is another important thing. But then if you kind of take a step back away from the specific vitamins, um, there's a lot of other things that uh, that we're seeing come out in the data as far as prevention, such as you know things simple things like probiotics in your in your microbiome, um, general nutritional status, are you sleeping? You know all of the things we talk to patients about. So while you can't always say, well these these will for sure prevent you from getting COVID, they probably will prevent you from having complications at the very least. So it all comes down to the basics of health. And uh, I think this is yeah. the most important thing we can teach patients. Yeah. And I think this is the most important thing I learned um, at naturopathic schools and from my patients and from experience. It's always the basics of health, taking care of your health, sleeping well, correcting all these nutritional deficiencies, uh, eating well healthy relationships. I mean, I can go on and on and on. Yeah. Um, but what would you recommend to someone who's had COVID and developed long COVID and they're struggling? They've tried this. Maybe they read something on the internet. That's very, Dr. Google is very popular still. Um, and they're trying to implement the strategies, but they're not seeing any effect from the therapies that they're doing. What would you recommend to this um, population? Yeah, it's, um, I will say of any population of patients around COVID, the long, the long haul or the COVID long patients are the most frustrated. There, it's very similar to our patients pre-COVID who maybe had chronic fatigue syndrome or Lyme disease, et cetera, very, very similar uh, problems. In the in the in the United States, anyway, what we see is uh, they go to their regular primary care doctor, and they say, "I had COVID three months ago, and I still uh, I can't smell anymore, and I have joint pain or whatever they have." Right. So the primary care doctors in the in North America, what they do is they then say, "Well, you should see a neurologist, and you should see a cardiologist, and maybe one other specialist." So they send them out to all these specialists. The specialists then go through their case and maybe do some tests and realize they don't have, you know, a primary cardiac disease. They don't have a neurological disease. Maybe they don't have a clotting problem. There's nothing they can find. And they basically say, well, you're fine. Go back to your primary care doctor. Well, the primary care doctor then, in the absence of these larger pathologies, doesn't know what to do for the patient. You know, so they might send them to a psychiatrist or something, you know, or put them on a antidepressant. Um, the best answer to the question, which is the hardest, is if they can find a doctor like yourself, me, somebody in our world, who's more likely to look at a bigger picture, they're more likely to get help. Okay. Um, and I don't know any way around that really because it does require some 
you know, some effort to try and if you've been sick for two, three, four, six months a year, it's going to require some effort to figure out what weakness areas you've, you know, the COVID has stirred up in you and what you should do about it. Um, people who generally have done things um, have usually done more than one thing. Okay, so that might mean that uh, they have slowly started to get back into physical movement. And one one caution I always give people with COVID is, if you have post-COVID syndrome, uh, even if you were a high-level athlete before COVID, it's going to take you months and months to get back your athletic uh, training, your, your tolerance. So we have people go very slowly into, you know, recovering their movement activities if they were not athletic before we just go really slow with them but that that's very helpful um some people and of course this you know i i can't make a recommendation about because it's very individual but there are some people because of all these other infections that like to hang on with covid after who uh, might do, you know, botanical, so herbal, you know, approaches uh, to help out. And maybe their primary care doctor isn't doing anything. Uh, but I, I've had people where maybe there's no uh, integrative physicians, naturopathic physicians in their area, and they've gone to see maybe a Chinese herbalist or, or a traditional herbalist, uh, and they've been able to help with the, the sort of helping the immune system get back on track. Um, so physical movement seems to help on a lot of levels, but you got to do it very slowly and steady. Uh, we find a lot of times that if you can work with someone who works constitutionally, uh, meaning they look at your whole system and, and what it needs, um, constitutional, you know, herbal prescribing can be very helpful. Um, and then, of course, if you can see somebody who does integrative medicine, you know, whether it's a naturopathic doctor or a medical doctor who specializes in integrative therapies, they're more likely to step back and say, okay, you don't have diseases here. You're just not functioning correctly. So we need to do things to support your body to move forward. I love that. You're just not functioning correctly. And that's that's yeah. exactly what it is. It's post-infectious right. syndrome. Right. Yeah. That's been yeah. known actually for thousands of years. Yeah. Uh, traditional Chinese medicine is described. And I yeah. actually seen uh, that Chinese herbal formulas work really well uh, to just yeah. build back that chi and give a person that stamina and that, that vitality. Yeah. So that brings me to my next question. Where does hyperbaric oxygen therapy fit into that picture? So um, the nice thing with hyperbaric oxygen therapy, uh, if you can get access to it, is I personally found it to be helpful uh, in the acute stage of the disease, but also in the healing phase. And in people who have become chronic, so long COVID, uh, it can be helpful. It's just, a, it's a little slower, you know, so the earlier you can do it, the better. But a couple of things to consider. So if, uh, I, I don't have control over the camera here, if I could turn around, there's a hyperbaric chamber right over there in my office. And uh, we have 
access to that and, and I do that clinically, et cetera. Um, the way to think about hyperbaric oxygen is that you have three um, levers or pressure points uh, for the therapy. So you have how much time you're under pressure in the hyperbaric system. You have the actual pressure you're using. And then you have the gas mixture, whether it's oxygen and room air or room air or some other combination thereof. So when you're thinking about the prescription of hyperbaric oxygen, you're getting three different effects that are all synergistic. One of the things we forget about, because hyperbaric oxygen, it's easy to be very mechanistic about it, which is true. It's a very mechanistic treatment. So the mechanistic stuff I'll talk about next, but there's a very important um, uh, uh, micro-mechanistic uh, effect of hyperbaric oxygen, which is just in the research in the last five or six years, for the most part. And that is that uh, the pressure effect of hyperbaric oxygen actually creates a genetic effect and an epigenetic effect. So if you do have weaknesses, so genes are your code, but epigenetics are what turn them on and off. And it turns out that, that hyperbaric oxygen therapy, uh, mostly through the pressure, is a kind of like a reset mechanism for the epigenetics around uh, things that can either make your immune system work better or worse. So this is a, an, another mechanism by which we see uh, for example, hyperbaric oxygen helping with neurological recovery or lung disease or something like that. So the other side, beyond the epigenetic uh, sort of retraining that the hyperbaric does, is if you think about somebody and, you know, what's the, uh, you get COVID, what's the crux between don't need the hospital and you need the hospital? It's how much oxygen you're perfusing into your blood. Now, prior to Omicron, Delta and before had a large amount of <clears throat> the COVID inflammation in the lungs. And so people would go into respiratory distress, and then they would go to the hospital, and then they'd be put on oxygen. That's not enough. Then they're put on you know, various types of, uh, you know, either uh, ventilators or ECMO or whatever. So if you think about that, and obviously in the hospital, the factors are different. But prior to the hospital, if you can do hyperbaric oxygen, and it physically just goes around your lungs and increases the plasma, your blood plasma uh, carrying of oxygen, that on its own is helpful. And we've seen that with patients, and I saw it with myself. Um, so hyperbaric oxygen can be quite useful. <clears throat> now, there's uh, a colleague of ours, uh, Paul Harch, who you know, um, in, in the United States, and he did a presentation for me six months ago at a conference, and he was talking about uh, the Spanish flu pandemic, you know, 1917-18, and how they actually did do some trials back then with large-scale hyperbaric oxygen use. And uh, was very, very positive as to the outcome of people who were able to do that versus those who didn't. Now, of course, we're not dealing with the Spanish flu, but we have some similar things like lung inflammation, immune dysregulation, et cetera. So 
what I usually tell people is if, and again, this is an access issue sometimes, if you have access or in your, you know, in your city, there, there's access to hyperbaric and you can do it, the earlier, the better is, is good. <clears throat> if you are beyond acute COVID and you now have long COVID, what we have seen with patients is that adding hyperbaric oxygen into their other therapies, it helps to speed up a lot of the recovery. So in long COVID, you might have taste and smell problems. Those can recover faster with hyperbaric oxygen. You may have residual uh, pulmonary problems, you know, microclotting or things that have spread to your cardiovascular system. Hyperbaric can help with that. So it's... Um, because it's a universal treatment that treats all of your cells, kind of doesn't matter where the problem is with long COVID, the hyperbaric can be uh, a synergist to the other therapies you're doing. What if, I actually agree, um, I think 100% with that uh, statement. I've seen people, including myself and my husband, recovering really well from COVID with the help of a hyperbaric chamber. And what we used was 1.3 atmosphere so it was a soft chamber yeah now with long covid i noticed that patients respond a lot better to higher pressures so when they go at 1.75 to 2 atmospheres the recovery is much faster they would need fewer treatments and we would see the actual result whereas when they're using just 1.3 it's almost like it's not enough of a push um, that's just a personal clinical experience. So I wanted to ask, what's your experience with that? Yeah, yeah, I think it's it's interesting with pressure uh, and and what you have available. Um, in our clinic, we had both higher pressure systems and lower pressure systems available. And with COVID, like you were describing, it's almost the opposite of um, some other therapies we might think of. Um, what I have noticed is if you can start early, so you're just dealing with early COVID and you're taking care of yourself and all that, and you can do hyperbaric, almost any pressure system is very helpful. If you get to long COVID, a lot of times the damage is uh, more diffuse. It's around your body. And sometimes in those cases, a higher pressure can help kind of break through uh, the inertia of the disease and what it's done to you. So if, but here's a practical thing people run into, they might only have availability of low pressure systems in their town, right? So what I will tell them is it's sort of like, you know, if, if you had something that was going to help you get better and you could drink a big glass of it, you know, every hour, it, it would help you faster. If all you have is a little cup, um, it's still going to help, but you're going to have to do it more often. So low pressure systems like the soft, the 1.3 to 1.5 systems, those we will often have to have people do a lot of repetition. 1.75 to 2 or higher, um, and a lot of times you see the symptom changes much fat, like you know maybe even with each therapy or each two therapies so i would agree i think i think i've seen the same thing 
and a lot of it is, you know, it's sort of like the other things we talked about. It's what you can find and what you have available to you locally too. Um, the, you actually answered my next question because that was what was the number of sessions. I, I understand it's individual, and it's also if it's a higher pressure, turns out maybe less sessions would be required. If it's a lower pressure, yeah, um, then maybe more sessions. Um, so in your experience, which therapies, hyperbaric oxygen therapy, combines um, well with? Um, what would you use? Because I'm all for integration of different therapies there it's never one single thing yeah. although maybe yeah. acupuncturists yeah. would say no no it's just acupuncture but really and this is what naturopathic medicine is about it's it's an umbrella for so many so many therapies yeah. we're really lucky here um what what do you use hyperbarics with like what's your favorite uh well, combinations you know one of the things and this goes way back before covid um we uh, in in our clinic, but also in a lot of the places that I do consulting for. There's a couple of hospitals and some other big clinics that have a lot of facility that have hyperbaric and other things. But in our clinic, hyperbaric we brought in about say ten years ago, and we were already doing many other things. So we put it together with all those other things, and what we found is that the synergy is maybe more important than any individual therapy. So for example, uh, I literally just a couple of days ago finished a, a conference, a, a chronic neurology conference. And one of the cases I presented was somebody who had a, a, a brain injury. And we were looking at the difference between brain injuries and a straight uh, just hyperbaric therapy series or brain injury and hyperbaric plus oral stabilizing uh, therapies, plus in our case, we did intravenous uh, nutrient therapies. So if you had like, there was no limit to your options, my personal experience is we will do uh, cell supportive or immune supportive IV therapy right after somebody does a hyperbaric oxygen dive. Now, let's say they don't have that available. They can't do intravenous therapies. What I recommend in those cases is that they do cell repair therapies and um, cell stabilizing therapies concurrently with the hyperbaric. So, for example, um, things to support the mitochondria, uh, and that could be a number of, you know, we think of, uh, you know, carnitine and alpha lipoic acid, CoQ10. Uh, also, you know, mitochondrial support uh, by uh, some of the NAD precursors like nicotinamide, riboside, other things. So mitochondrial support, but also uh, membrane support. So go from the inside to the outside of the cell. We'll give people uh, phosphatidylcholine and other phospholipids they can take orally to help with that. Um, we had a case of... Uh, Another case that I presented was actually a COVID case. And these were twins who were born and within, uh, I believe, a couple weeks old. One twin got COVID and the other didn't. So imagine that, poor parents. Um, and then the twin that got COVID also had three other very bad infections that came down on them. 
and they got encephalitis, their brain swelled. It was very, very bad. And the neurologist told the parents and the grandparents that, you know, the twin that was sick not only had COVID, which also affects your brain, but also had some other bad infections. And they, of course, treated them and they were able to get the infectious load down. But they said, you know, the, the child will have a, a developmental delay. They were mentally incapacitated by all the brain inflammation. So we had these two twins and one was thriving and the other one was in very bad shape. Um, the grandmother actually is one of our colleagues and, and the reason I knew about the case, they had called me and they had access to a hyperbaric system and they said, would it be safe for a, you know, a less than one month old baby and here's what's going on. And so what I told them to do was uh, I said yes it, it's actually very safe with babies works really good um usually the parent goes in with the baby so what i had them do was to uh put the baby on and of course little tiny babies can't take things like us adults do but we give them a little newborn uh dose of some phosphatidylcholine to help with the cell recovery and a little baby newborn dose of a couple of other uh cell support antioxidants and they started to do, uh, they, they were in a high pressure system, but because it was a baby, we started at low pressure and worked up a little bit. Um, and because it was a baby, again, instead of putting a mask on them, uh, they, they just had the oxygen piped in right next to the baby's face. So it was breathing pretty well. Uh, and so the mom and both twins would go in and do these dives. And um, so then they sent me updates as they went along. And at about uh, 40 dives, so, you know, now keep in mind, this is not your average post-COVID. This is uh, an encephalitis case where the brain has been damaged. But at 40 dives, they were able <clears throat> to get the baby rechecked by the neurologist. And they said that uh, both twins were equal and they both had the same amount of neurological function. Uh, so the effect of the hyperbaric on the recovery to the nervous system just from the infectious you know effects on the nervous system was very remarkable um and and most of our patients thankfully don't have that full complement of problems where their brain swells and you know all of that so i've i've seen hyperbaric be involved <clears throat> in very um very meaningful changes in COVID and post-COVID cases, but the only times we use it is in combo with cell-supportive therapies at the very least. Wow, that's uh, that's a remarkable case, and uh, and especially because it's a little baby, I know mm -hmm. it, it makes it a little more special, I think, that way, and I'm really happy that uh, the child is doing well. Yes. Uh, uh, I was curious when you were telling the story, why would the second twin go inside the chamber? Um, <clears throat> it was, uh, it, it had a lot to do more with the emotional bond that the mm -hmm. twins had. That's what I thought. Yeah. And so, you know, on the first, so they sent me a picture of the very first dive and uh, then as along the way, and then, then the later it dives about 40, dive 43, I think. And on the first dive, the, the baby who was affected was so 
uh, diminished in function. It was sort of curled up in a partial fetal position. And uh, the healthy twin actually just put its arm around it, you know, through the whole dive. And, you know, mom was there too. Uh, and and on the last dive, they both look identical. They're both smiling and they're having a good time and all this. So it's really remarkable. Yeah. But yeah, it was for the, uh, you know, that twin bond and the emotional support. Well, I love those stories. Uh, yeah. I think that's why we're in this profession. This yeah. is the reward. I, Yeah. Uh, I have a question. So what do you think, where is this place for hyperbaric oxygen therapy in integrative medicine? Not necessarily when it has to do with COVID or any other disease, but generally. Yeah. What I see uh, is we either have hyperbaric practitioners, people who have hyperbaric clinics and they, and they provide hyperbaric treatments. We have very few integrative practitioners who use hyperbarics with other therapies. And I think, has hyperbarics found its place uh, within integrative medicine, functional medicine, or is still searching for this place? You know, I think it's on the way. I I think it's still very new. And I think, as as you know very well, a lot of the research and our knowledge of clinical hyperbaric medicine, separate from you know dive medicine and emergency medicine, is very uh, much evolving. You know, we're learning a lot. There's, uh, in fact, there's research coming out in just a couple of months that sort of changes all of our understanding of the benefits of oxygen versus room air and pressure and all this. And so. Um, I think because of that and because of the barrier to entry for a clinic as far as cost of hyperbaric equipment, I think those two things have slowed down hyperbaric becoming more available than it is. Um, One of the things that I try to do is to acquaint practitioners with, you know, high quality um, systems that are affordable, et cetera, so that that's one barrier. Uh, but the other thing I'm really trying to do is to educate practitioners about, you know, this is a a collaborative therapy that will make all your other things that you do work better, you know. And so they have to sort of get that mindset. It's sort of like you get a, a clinic that didn't used to do any modality, but let's say uh, neurofeedback, which can be very good in your neurological cases. And they start doing it and they realize, well, that really makes a lot of the other therapies I do work better and longer and more persistent. So I think that hyperbaric is in that place where it's an emerging therapy. And my hope is that as opposed to, say, just a hyperbaric clinic where they don't do anything else, that we have integrative uh, access to hyperbaric where you're doing all the things you and I do and hyperbaric is there to synergize. I I absolutely agree. And I think um, we're still learning. And I think th- that's probably the biggest obstacle. Yeah. We know, okay, it works for this condition. And most of the conditions we use uh, it for are off-label when we use it in just sure. regular naturopathic clinic, for example. Sure. 
Um, but how many treatments, what pressure do we go? It's still, there's still a lot of research that needs to be done to have definitive uh, protocols. Yeah. Well, and that's, you know, um, I, that makes it kind of exciting and also frustrating that, you know, when you're trying to help a, a clinician add a therapy, if it's still in the, you know, kind of in the clinical research stage, it becomes difficult because you can't say, okay, you can, you always do this number of treatments, you know, and do this. Uh, what I find with the integrative protocols is when we start to integrate other parts of what we do with hyperbaric, we can do less number of treatments usually. You know, like you and I were talking about, you might still have to do some higher pressure with some people and lower with others, but but with integrative treatments, I think we can do less total treatments, which is very good. And I think we've touched on one very important point here. Um, I'm a member of uh, several Facebook groups that tend to talk a lot about hyperbarics. And people would uh, use a hyperbaric chamber and they would use just a hyperbaric chamber, whether they get it uh, right. for their home use or they go to a clinic where they just demand some hyperbaric treatments and they yeah. don't see a lot of change in their health. Yeah. Unless it's a very specific indication like uh, like post-concussion syndrome or something very, very specific for hyperbarics, and then they would see the result. But if it's general health improvement and some women's health issues, so they don't see the result and they start panicking. Hyperbaric doesn't work. How many sessions? Maybe I'm not doing the right yeah. pressure. Maybe I'm not using the supplemental oxygen, but it's not about that. It's about integrating hyperbarics yeah. with other, other modalities and maybe getting IVs. And, and you need a practitioner really to determine yeah. uh, what you need. And when I say that, um, I mean it because I myself, uh, being a naturopathic doctor, I don't treat myself. I would go to somebody else like you who could see the big picture and be objective. So we all need a practitioner to give us a prescription of what to do with our health. And, and hyperbarics is not, uh, is not an exception here. Very uh, true. Yeah. I think it's, it's a big take-home message. Uh, and in your clinic, um, what kind of conditions do you treat? I know you treat all kinds of conditions, and I don't want to give a spoiler here, but what, what do you treat most? <laughs> <laughs> you know, in, in my particular clinic and a couple of the other places that are similar that I uh, consult for with respect to protocols and things, we tend to be two groups of patients. One is um, the more advanced cancer patients. And then the other group are uh, chronic illness that, are, that tend to be complex. So that could be uh, autoimmunity with a lot of other factors. That could be chronic infectious problems that have brought in a lot of other, you know, uh, mitigating factors, uh, you know, such as toxicity and mold exposure and you know that whole circle that goes around uh so and it's it's it goes back and forth but it's roughly half and half uh so half advanced cancer and half kind of complex chronic illness patients and i know you treat you treat a lot of you have a lot of cancer patients and i wanted to ask you maybe we could do another episode yeah on cancer and hyperbarics yeah. i i think that would be a 
a good use of a good use of time and it'd be good just to just to be able to drill into cancer and hyperbaric because you know no spoilers but <laughs> my experience with hyperbaric and cancer is sort of it's it's a lot like with covid or other things used in a, in an integrative fashion it's extremely good extremely useful and it's very safe and helpful with cancer uh used on its own it takes you know it's it's just one tool and you really need multiple tools with cancer so yeah i'd love to do that i'd love to have you back um if people want to find you where can they find you the uh i have a website that's a hub for all the other things i do um so it's d-r-a-n-o-w dr a now so d-r-a-n-o-w.com and on there there's link to my uh youtube page which has a lot of the videos you've talked about uh also links to uh, newsletters i've written and other other things books etc so d-r-a-n-o-w.com dr a now.com and you have resources both for patients and for practitioners yeah yeah on that website if if you're a practitioner you can navigate over to that side or if you're a patient you can navigate to the patient stuff pretty easy there's a lot of content i it's sometimes uh if i can't fall asleep i go to your page and then like start digging uh, and it doesn't put me to sleep that's the problem you know it's really it's, it's really interesting there's I a find. lot in there there's well, thank you. It's good. It's not. It's not a very good sleep aid. I should. Uh, yeah. I should tell you. It's. Uh, it's quite engaging. Um, Dr. Anderson, thank you for uh, spend taking your time and sharing your expertise and your knowledge. I really appreciate it. Um, I'll have you back on a podcast. Definitely, we'll talk about cancer therapies and um, the role hyperbarics has in this therapies. Um, and uh, guys, if you enjoyed this episode and you know someone who can benefit from this information, please send them a link to this episode. And otherwise, I'll see you next week.